when I take stock of my life, there were a lot of things that I've done and I've accomplished that were motivated by the laziness lie. Things that I did that as soon as I had that trophy in my hand, it meant nothing to me. And I was just worried about what comes next. And it just felt really empty. But the things in my life that actually do matter and that I can take pride in that lasts tend to be the things that are motivated more by my beliefs and my values and my compassion. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, does laziness really exist? I'm going to do something unusual this week. I'm going to share with you a little bit about our process here at the Next Big Idea podcast. And I think it's best to do this with my partner in the show, Next Big Idea producer, Caleb Bissinger. Hi, Caleb. Hey, Rufus. Well, this is fun. We're like parting the curtains and uh, <laughs> displaying the Wizard of Oz here. Our listeners have not gotten to meet you, Caleb, and it's high time they do. Hey, listeners. <laughs> so every month, we have the pleasure of sifting through Dozens and dozens of books. And I mean, it's a, it's, it's a privilege, really. We have, we have a pretty cool job. Sort of. I mean, it's not a privilege for my partner who is always complaining that every open surface in our apartment is taken up by galley copies of new books. <laughs> yeah, it does create a storage problem. So some of these books call out to us right away, right? They're like heavyweight authors. We have to get on the show. And then other books call out to us because the ideas are so bold and timely that we just have to have to run them. Yes. So, I mean, when we came across The Extended Mind, Annie Murphy-Paul's book about thinking outside of your brain, that just stopped us in our tracks. I think the same was true of Drunk by Edward Slingerland. Absolutely. Like, I think we definitely were, we needed we needed a way to justify the nightly glass of wine, and, and he did that beautifully. Yes, that was that was uh, important and timely, maybe in our own in our own worlds. But <laughs> what a great one, right? You know, and then I think there is this other category too of just these books that we just kind of get obsessed with, right? That like we keep coming back to the thesis over and over again, whether it's a big or small book, right? Like we just we can't shake it. Absolutely, and that was true of the book we're talking about today, "Laziness Does Not Exist." by Devin Price, which was published last spring, I want to say like April or May. It's a short book with a powerful thesis that's expressed very directly in the in the title. You know, let me just also say to you, yeah. I love that this book does not have a subtitle. Like, that's it. Laziness does not exist. It doesn't need any more. <laughs> yes, yes, which is actually, we don't see a lot of books without subtitles, right, Caleb? I mean, and we, we see a lot of books, very few without subtitles. And, and, and that's a, a bold and appropriate choice. And it just kind of impregnated me with this question of like, what would it mean for laziness not to exist? Mm -hmm. This is without even having cracked open the book, just the title was calling to me. And this idea that maybe we're not naturally lazy as we all fear we are, but instead we're just, we're inherently curious and motivated and passionate. And there are obstacles to surfacing that inherent energy that, that pull us down. And so we finally cracked it open and found that Devin asserts that this idea that we are lazy has a curious history. Right. That's what's really cool about the book is Devin sort of traces laziness back all the way to the etymology of the word, which comes from, I think, either German or Old English and mm -hmm. was sort of always associated with this 
moral failure, this failure of character. And then they talk about like the Puritans and the Protestant work ethic and the way that laziness was used to justify slavery in colonial America. So it's this sort of fascinating history lesson on top of being, you know, a work of psychology and a work of philosophy. Yeah, it, it, it hit on a, a number of themes of great interest to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but bottom line is we just could not get the book out of our heads. It kept popping up in our conversations. I mean, to the point where it was, I mean, as you know, like this running joke between us where every time we'd have a meeting about picking future guests for the show, inevitably you would end that meeting by saying, you know, there, it was like Steve Jobs, right? It was like, the, there's one more thing. You, this was your Steve Jobs <laughs> thing. You yeah. were always just like, yeah. you know, there's one more book that's been on my mind. Right. Laziness does not exist. And so, and so a couple of weeks ago, we just hit, we, we just hit the enough already inflection point and said, let's just stop talking about it. Let's give Devin a call, get them on the show. And so here they are. Let's, um, before we jump in, let, do you want to just do a little bio? Oh, right. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So Devin's a writer, activist, and social psychologist who teaches at Loyola University in Chicago, if memory serves. And let me, you know, I, I think it'd be fun before we jump in, there's this great, I want to read a quote from the book, if that's cool. I think it really tees it up for, great for idea. listeners. So Devin says, there's no morally corrupt, slothful force inside us driving us to be unproductive for no reason. It's not evil to have limitations and to need breaks. The feelings we write off as laziness are some of humanity's most important instincts. I love that. Well, that is music to my ears because I feel like there's a morally corrupt, slothful force inside <laughs> me. And I, it'd be really nice to know it's not there, right? And, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful optimism, I think, implicit in this idea. Devin invites us to imagine a world where we stop judging other people for being lazy. We stop shaming ourselves for being unproductive and start realizing that doing less is not a moral failure. Rufus, would you say this book is in the category of books that help you live the life you want to lead anyway? What's your line <laughs> that you always say there? Yeah. No, this fits perfectly into, <laughs> into my uh, scientific studies to support the life I want to live anyway file. No question about it. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Devin Price, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Hi, Rufus. Thanks for having me. So, David, a couple of years ago, you published an essay on Medium, the title of which was Laziness Does Not Exist, a provocative title. And that essay went viral. It was viewed, I think, two and a half million times and translated into Spanish, Portuguese, Arabic, German, Turkish, Mandarin, and Japanese. That essay became a book. What is your thesis and why do you think this has resonated? Yeah. So the thesis behind laziness does not exist, um, both the book and the original essay, is that from where a person is sitting, their own actions are always going to make sense. That if someone is failing to take action or they seem unmotivated to us from the outside, it's because we're not seeing what the barriers to action are for them, the ways in which they're exhausted, the systems around them that are kind of boxing them in and keeping them constrained, just all of the forces that are making it difficult for them to make a change or take action that they want to take. And 
I think this idea has resonated with a lot of people because I think we've all been made to feel like we're not doing enough. And I think we've all had that experience of people judging us from the outside while not understanding our context. It certainly resonates for me. And this is personal for you, isn't it, Devin? Um, can you tell us about your parents and the world you grew up in and how, how that shaped the way you thought about laziness growing up? Sure. Yeah. So I have a little bit of that standard gifted education kid baggage of being told at a young age that I had potential that I needed to live up to. And for me, that also really dovetailed with the fact that my dad and his family were all from Appalachia and lived in like intense poverty and had a lot of that anxiety still that they were bringing to the table. So even though I mm -hmm. grew up in a Midwestern suburb, I always felt just this panic that I needed to secure like a comfortable life for myself by working as hard as possible. And for me, the answer to that in my mind, for some reason, was academia. I went straight to graduate school out of college. I finished graduate school and got my PhD when I was 25. I went straight into a postdoctoral research job right after that. And I immediately became just debilitatingly sick, intense, like bone shaking fevers mm. every single night for like nine months. And it was this huge wake up call for me that the really fervent achievement hunting, gifted kid kind of uh, world and life that I had been pursuing was not sustainable. And so even when you are someone who can kind of play by the rules of society that tell you to always do more and achieve more, even as someone who actually was kind of like winning by the rules of that game, I wasn't really winning. It was eating me up alive. Do you ever think about what your path might have been had you not had that experience? I mean, do you think that you would have perhaps not been aware of the, the power of this kind of laziness mythology? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think my struggles with it helped me recognize how many of my students that I was teaching were going through the same thing. And that is one of the really pivotal experiences that inspired me to write the laziness does not exist essay in the first place, because I was seeing a lot of my really busy, exhausted, traumatized students being mm. judged by other professors as lazy. When I already knew at that point, hey, wait a second, we're missing a big part of the story if we think that's an explanation for why they're struggling. So in in a way, I'm super grateful that I got to have that wake-up call. I, mm -hmm. A lot of people don't have that wake-up call until far later in life. And, and quite literally, like the doctors that were looking at these symptoms that you were enduring, including like a heart murmur and anemia, couldn't explain it. And when you sort of eased up on yourself, those symptoms went away. Yeah, I was tested for basically any kind of chronic or invisible illness you can think of, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, all of these things. Um, and there wasn't any explanation. All these blood tests, which is just the last thing you want to be doing when you're already anemic and like passing out. Yeah. Um, and eventually I just had to like break down and say, like, I need to go at a slower pace because the whole time I was that sick for months, I was still trying to work a full-time job and exercise every day. I was, I knew I would get sick every evening. So I would try to cram as much productivity into my good hours of the day every day. And so of course I wasn't getting any better. And eventually that just ground to a halt. Well, let's get into it. Uh, starting with big idea number one, the laziness lie. The laziness lie is my term for the set of unspoken yet deeply held cultural beliefs that each of us absorbs throughout our lifetime about the value of work and the danger of quote-unquote laziness. 
The laziness lie has three main tenets. The first is that your worth is your productivity. The second is that there is always more you could be doing. And the third is that you cannot trust your own needs and limitations. This outlook is responsible for so much pain and suffering in our world. It leads many of us to overwork ourselves to sickness, and it also convinces many of us that we don't have to worry about people who are suffering from massive social issues such as homelessness, unemployment, drug addiction, and other inequalities. The laziness lie essentially teaches us that work is the solution to all problems, and that we should all be responsible for ourselves and no one else, and that we can blame society's biggest victims for being too lazy to solve the problem of their own oppression and marginalization. The truth, though, is that no one would ever choose to fail or to disappoint others if they could. There is no shameful, slothful force inside of us that makes us tired or checked out for no reason. There's just exhaustion and burnout and being overwhelmed and setting out to do too much. If a person cares about getting something done, yet they repeatedly fail to get that thing done, it's clearly because there are barriers in their way, often a variety of barriers, in fact. And what they really need is support in removing those roadblocks so that they can move forward. Alternatively, if someone looks lazy because they're just apathetic or they don't care about meeting a particular goal, well then really the question becomes why they don't see that goal as important in the first place. Sometimes people who look apathetic are suffering from trauma or learned helplessness. Apathy is a really common consequence of burnout. If you've worked really hard and your efforts have never really paid off, it makes sense to check out of a lot of unfair systems and competitions in life. You see what looks like apathy a lot in people who have worked too hard for too long. And also sometimes we just look lazy because we're setting priorities in our lives about which things we care about. If you can't do it all, it's actually pretty reasonable to look lazy about the things that aren't the top priority for you. Let me start by saying, Devin, that I totally buy your core thesis. I think this is a pervasive view in our society. I think it's destructive. It's something that I struggle with personally, a, a sense that I'm not doing enough, as do, I think, probably most people that I know. Where do you think this comes from? I, I think that the history of it that you get into in your book is fascinating. Yeah. So in the book, I trace it back to the Puritans, if we really want to understand where the laziness lie came from in terms of American history. And the Puritans had just really kind of fascinating and twisted, uh, in a lot of ways, beliefs about human nature. Um, they believed children should be treated like little adults. They would make furniture that was designed to actually kind of contort babies and into as adult a posture as possible, kind of just ignoring the fact that they aren't strong enough to hold their heads up, which I think is a really good indication of how they understood human limits in general, this idea you should just kind of push through it. And they really believed that if you were a hard worker, that was a sign you were already blessed. It wasn't this idea of like earning your way into heaven. It was that people who work hard already have been marked for heaven. And people who didn't get a lot of work done were basically already 
damned. So it, it was this very blame the victims for their own struggles kind of ideology. Mm-hmm. And as America was being colonized, that kind of really intense flavor of Christianity was very useful to twist into justifying things like enslavement. This idea that there are just some people who need to be forced to work because otherwise they won't. Um, and unfortunately, it's a really insidious idea, but it's something that is still really built into almost all of our social welfare programs and how people talk about them and how we talk about things mm-hmm, like poverty mm-hmm. and homelessness and drug addiction. It's just, you know, some people are just bad and you need to force them to work harder, basically. And I, I was I was interested to learn reading your book that the word lazy comes either from the German word meaning feeble and weak or an old English word that meant false and evil. So from the beginning, calling someone lazy has been an act of judgment. Yeah. And it's a judgment that when you think of those two words together, those two meanings together, it doesn't really make sense. How can someone be both weak and be evil because of that weakness? And yet that's really what we are essentially saying almost every time that we write someone off as lazy. It reminds me of the old quote, you know, idle hands are the devil's playthings, attributed to Ben Franklin, I think, but they're variations that go back all the way to the medieval era. And so it, it, it feels like it's a deep part of this kind of Anglo-American heritage that maybe dates back even even further before uh, the founding of this country. Yeah, yeah. It's very deep-seated and it tends to rise back up and be used whenever there is some kind of kind of worker movement or some kind of like mm-hmm. revolutionary movement that's kind of challenging the status quo. So we see it a lot during the Industrial Revolution, for example, both in the US and in the UK, just a lot of writing around that time that like we can't let the poor in general have too much idle time because they'll just drink and resort to crime, which again is basically just the idle hands is the devil's plaything idea. Like so we can't give people an eight hour workday and time off because they'll use it for evil pursuits, basically. You know, it, it strikes me that it's possible that the laziness lies you call it might date back even further. We we did an episode with the anthropologist James Sussman called Work. And you know what's extraordinary is when anthropologists have studied literally dozens of hunter-gatherer tribes around the world, none of them have a concept of toil. You know, you'd have a, a, a typical hunter-gatherer would, would would work like three to four hours a day, but there wasn't this notion that we have today of sort of work as something we associate with sort of toil or hardship. And then you hear these accounts of early missionaries encountering these tribes. And describing them as lazy, they try to teach them to farm, right? <laughs> they describe mm-hmm. them as lazy because they, they would say in some of these accounts, hunter-gatherers would prefer sitting around in the village in, in hammocks, eating insects or nuts and berries or whatever they successfully hunted to farming. So the Westerners thought this was lazy behavior, right? And of course, they judged them. But meanwhile, from the perspective of the hunter-gatherers, they lived in, a, in an environment that was like a a, a whole foods marketplace of wonderful nutrition and they enjoyed each other's company. So why would they do unnecessary labor? And so the, I guess one possible explanation could be that, you know, this argument that the emergence of farming itself was a Faustian bargain. It resulted in people working much longer hours. And it also resulted in people in humans being exposed to, you know, famines, where there's a drought and there's crops fail for a year or two and there's mass starvation. And, and you know, so there's this fear that like, without adequate food storage, we're all gonna die, you know? Um, and of course, so maybe, do you think it's possible that this cultural 
um, obsession with industry and, and productivity and shaming of idleness could, could arguably have something to do with this transition to farming and this fear of, you know, that idleness will result in some kind of system collapse. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, it's very timely that you're asking this because I've been doing some research for another book I'm working on right now that is about shame and kind of oh, the history of shame as a social tool. And um, I think it's hard with anthropological work because you don't want to simplify all hunter-gatherer sure. uh, cultures into being exactly the same. But it does seem to be the case that when you were a hunter-gatherer society, that is a large numbers game, and it's a game that's kind of full of randomness. So people have to pool their resources, and they have to trust that you know whether you're going to bring home some game tonight is not necessarily tied to how hard you work. There's a lot of other factors, which is why we're all kind of communally sharing what we get and sharing our luck. Yep. And once you transition to agriculture, like exactly like you said, you have these incredibly long hours. And um, it's very timely in a very different way, where it's if you miss the wrong season, you're screwed for the next year or years. And so all of a sudden, you shame people for not working hard enough because it becomes something that you think that you can measure and control instead of being kind of infused with randomness and requiring you to trust other people and knowing that you know what goes around comes around. Um, and I think it's also true that this tracks with as human societies got larger Yep. That when we were in relatively small communities, we could look after each other and we could understand, mm -hmm. okay, this person is good at this thing. This person's going through a hard time, so they're not showing up in the ways they maybe used to. We're all going to take care of each other. We're a family. Whereas as soon as communities get bigger, mm -hmm. you don't trust people as much. You don't have that investment. You don't know their story. And so all of a sudden, I think you do have shame uh, as a tool to try and motivate people. And I think you have laziness as this fear or this boogeyman that you that's kind of wrapped up in that. And then arguably capitalism, as it became a more and more powerful force, both economically and culturally, kind of ran with this, right? That we capitalism requires the efficient conversion of labor into profit. And laziness is, is a threat to the productivity of that transfer. Absolutely. Yeah. It's certainly not the case that there was no labor exploitation before uh, capitalism, but when you have forever growth as a goal, you pretty much have to have this belief in laziness, again, to justify pushing people to forever do more and more and to act as if humans are robots that you can just sap more productivity out of instead of us having pretty um, impossible to debate with needs and limits. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well. So you say there, there are three tenets of the laziness lie. There, there's your worth is your productivity. There's always more you could be doing. And you can't trust your own needs and limitations. That last one is particularly insidious, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even just looking at my own story, the reason that I got as sick as I got was because I always saw any emotion or physical feeling that was a barrier to my productivity as something to just stuff away and white knuckle through. And there's so many stories in the book of people who were eerily like me in the sense that they were working through a dying gallbladder or they were, you know, throwing up in the bathroom at work and then getting back onto the floor of the restaurant. And it's just also really built into how most work days function for most workers in America. You know, if you're a cashier, you're expected to stand up 
I guess because that looks more industrious, even though it's just really not good for people's knees or or bodies in general to just stand for eight hours per day. Um, and the same thing's true of being stuck at a desk for eight hours per day. We just force people to do these really uncomfortable things and ignore their bodily cues. And just also when their attention starts to kind of flag, because we're just not built to focus without breaks or novelty or social contact for that long. And I think it's really conditioned us to have like a really distorted relationship to consent even, and just to understand our own values and what we want our lives to be. If you just view every negative emotion or feeling as something to snuff out, that's going to really distort your relationships um, and your health in really dramatic ways. Well, that is a perfect segue to big idea number two. When you feel lazy, it's actually because you're doing too much. For my book, I interviewed some of the busiest, most stressed, most burnt out people around. Award-winning novelists, world-renowned street artists, trauma survivors who now work as victim advocates, and overworked, harried parents who are trying to raise kids while working full-time jobs and taking college classes. What I found was that across the board, each extremely busy person felt like a failure and was somehow convinced that despite all they were doing, they were lazy. One college student who I spoke to, who was suffering from a major depressive episode, told me that he was quote-unquote lazy because he needed naps every day in order to just have the energy to stay alive and do everything that he needed to get done. All of this really points to how impossible it is to win when you're operating under the rules of the laziness lie. It turns out that when we set out to do more than is ever going to be feasible for us, then we are always going to feel lazy because we're not checking off all of those boxes. The answer then is to stop beating ourselves up and to stop buying into the laziness lie and to start reframing how we set priorities in our lives. Often when you feel like you're not doing enough, the answer is to find something to cut back on, something to do less of, and something to let drop. So you say that laziness is not an inherent force, right? Something we have to we have to battle against, but rather we generally act lazy because of obstacles in our way. Is it, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think we can maybe draw a distinction between feeling tired, feeling checked out. Sometimes we have feelings that we tend to moralize as laziness that we could instead listen to and take as a cue that something is not sustainable right now. We just need a break. But yeah, we're most likely to beat ourselves up for being lazy, quote unquote, and not doing enough when we're just giving ourselves a a to-do list that is impossibly long. So of course, we're always going to feel like everything we do, we're coming up short. And you know, this, this book feels really timely because there's more and more evidence that there are limits to our ability to be productive. And in attempting to be too compulsively, excessively productive, we're actually less productive, right? All this research on four-day work weeks actually increasing productivity. You know, so, so it, it seems that in this sense, the, the laziness lie may be... Um, eroding a little bit, at least at, at least a sort of greater scientific evidence that we're all better off if we don't just drive ourselves quite so hard, but it remains quite prevalent. Yeah. And I am unfortunately a little cynical sometimes because we really have had data from industrial organizational psychology for quite a few decades at this point 
suggesting this idea that there are real limits to how long a person can focus on a task. And most workers are really only going to focus on work for about three to four hours per day. And the rest of the workday goes to other things. And over and over again, researchers and business leaders have approached that as a problem to solve. Even though we keep hitting on that same limit over and over again, instead of taking that as a descriptive fact and accepting it and saying, okay, if this is how humans work, what follows logically from that? Most people still approach it, I think, because of just the ideologies that we have and the laziness Mm -hmm. lie as a problem to solve. What can we do to motivate, manipulate, pressure, Mm -hmm. uh, foster productivity, however we want to talk about it, instead of just accepting that reality? I felt somewhat liberated in recent years by this knowledge that, gosh, if I accept that I'm really only capable of three or four hours of of true, intensely focused work, I much more often feel a sense of accomplishment at the end of the day. Whereas back in the days when I thought I really should be generating eight to 10 hours of work, I I would always feel like somewhat of a failure. Um, I mean, I probably still do (laughs) on a lot of days feel like I didn't get enough done. But I do think it's liberating, isn't it, to, to sort of just accept a somewhat more humble view of what we're capable of. And and not only liberating, but it, we end up actually being more effective. Yeah. And there's some really robust um, social psychological evidence for why this is. We sometimes talk about it in terms of the anchoring effect. And the idea there is there is no actual objective measure of how much you should be doing per day. All we have is what goals we set for ourselves and our social comparisons to other people that provide an anchor for what we decide is a reasonable expectation. So, for example, in some of my own experimental research, if you ask someone to name three facts about the president and that's all you asked for, most people can do that. And then you ask them how knowledgeable about politics do they think they are? They'll say, oh, I'm actually pretty knowledgeable about politics. But if you ask someone to name 20 things about the president, a lot of people can't do that. And just because you've given them that longer anchor, um, that longer list of expectations, all of a sudden now they'll say, oh, I guess I don't know that much about politics. And I think basically the same kind of thing can happen with productivity. If we decide I need to do 20 things per day mm-hmm. and you're just not going to hit that limit, all of a sudden you're going to feel like a failure, even if you did you know, far more than if you had had a shorter list. Yeah. And I have a to-do list that I write down every day and I typically you know, check about 40% of the items on that to-do list. And I think, I think I'm probably not alone. But there is something I think really inherently optimistic about this statement in the title of your book that laziness does not exist. There's something really kind of beautiful and hopeful, I think, about that, which is that I think implicit in this statement is that our natural state is not to be lazy or inert. Our natural state is to some degree one of animation, curiosity, enthusiasm for engaging with other humans, right? I mean, we like to build things together. We like to do productive things. It gives us pleasure. And I think that 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 framing of like, we are inherently motivated. We have this intrinsic motivation inside of us. All of us do. And yet we have these obstacles to get in the way of of, of that. And, And often those obstacles are a result of overwork, right? Like not enough sleep, not having a healthy enough balance, uh, and so on. Yeah, yeah. It's ultimately a really hopeful message. I'm glad that you kind of pick up on that um, because it's not just a um, a cry to be more compassionate to people who are struggling, though certainly the book is about that. It's also about kind of trusting ourselves and trusting other people and recognizing that 
people actually do innately want to have a meaningful impact on the world. Yeah. A book that I read uh, during the pandemic that is a few years old, but is evergreen is uh, Rebecca Solnit's A Paradise Built in Hell. Yeah. And in that book, she talks all about the human need to feel useful and helpful and how in times of natural disasters, most people run towards the danger, metaphorically or literally, because they want to help. They want to take care of other people. And we've been taught all these dangerous mythologies that like, oh, when there's a natural disaster, people riot and it's dog eat dog. And it's like, no, no, no. People really want to feel connected. And in fact, people in those survival ship situations often say those are some of their peak memories of their lives because they got to make a difference. And I think that's true for all of us. We all mm, want to do things yeah. that we can take pride in. Um, so we don't have to worry about people all actually deep down being lazy and selfish. That's just not how humans actually work. In preparing for this interview, I shared a survey with 20 of my closest friends. Coming up after the break, Davin and I dig into the results. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. You'll be interested to know this morning, Devin, I, I did a, uh, I surveyed friends. And so 90% of the 20 some friends who responded to the survey said, yes, I sometimes or occasionally feel that I have to battle this inner lazy impulse, right? You know, so, so I think this framing is, is, is really the sort of default framing, which is, which is, I think, part of the point of your book. Yeah, yeah. And it's just so, it's so funny because it's often some of the busiest people that I know that when the topic of this book comes up, they say things like, I know I have to push myself super hard because deep down I'm lazy. And it's like, no, I mean, that just tells you how tired you are or how little you've been allowed to trust your own feelings because we actually can be motivated by what gives us kind of intrinsic motivation and what we feel drawn towards and what makes us feel alive and connected to other people and like our lives matter. It's just not something that most of us have very much practice doing. So just getting back in touch with that inner sense of motivation and checking in with what our real values are and thinking about, okay, what would a life that is trusting myself look like? That's a pretty dramatic change, but it can really, it, it can change everything for the better. And, and what do you think of, I, so I, I, asked, I asked these friends in the survey for their additional comments or observations, and just about everybody agreed with the thesis, so, <laughs> which probably won't surprise you because the book has gotten such a great response. But uh, among additional comments that people made, one, one friend said that they believe that there's a, there's a range of natural or inherent gusto, for lack of a better word, I'm quoting this friend, when it comes to productivity. And he, he said he saw this with his, with his kids, that one from a young age just loves to get things done. The other two are more laid back. And uh, the, the drive for productivity may be universal, but it, but it varies quite a bit. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think when we um, look at people that way, we're still kind of applying a certain lens of what even counts as productive or what counts as kind of a meaningful 
life. Um, it's certainly true that there are temperament differences, right? Personality isn't is a pretty hard thing to measure and to use to predict behavior, but type A versus type B definitely seems to be uh, a pretty robust thing, that there are some people who have pretty uh, high ability to kind of initiate and really enjoy checking things off their to-do list and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm certainly one of those kinds of people. That's how I have gotten into the mess that I was in before. And I really, when I look at my life and my like rush to feel productive, I've also done so many destructive things to fulfill that need. You know, there are people that I've let down. There's relationships I haven't prioritized. There's times when I've just tried to finish a task too quickly because I just wanted it done instead of sitting in the uncertainty and the ambiguity and reflecting. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, yeah, there are individual differences in drive, but I think also we have moralized the people who are constantly always trying to do more and do things quicker And I think that's a real mistake and that affects how we view a lot of these things. Yeah, I agree 100%. I also think that there are, there are different kinds of drive, you know, and and I see in my own, I've, I've three boys and the part of the beauty of, of humans is that that we're all different, you know, and one thing I notice is a difference between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic, you know, some folks who really are driven to get the straight A's or the external validation of their accomplishments and other folks who are more intrinsically motivated. And that might appear from the outside to be, a, look like laziness at times, right? Or, But we also know there's also been a lot of research, right, showing how critical some sort of indolence or sl- slower movement, you might say, is to creativity, right? That we need, we need to give ourselves time. If we want to be creative people, we need to give ourselves time to daydream, time to process, and the way I think of it is that, that, that like play, like the act of playing, which is really kind of central to creativity, requires, you know, some room in the form of, of time to, to summon that. Yeah, there's so many different things to have drive towards doing. I think, first of all, is, is important to highlight yeah. in this conversation. Like creativity, again, exactly as you've said, it's not necessarily something that we can measure in a standard um, a really consistent time frame. There are periods of being very generative and periods of dormancy. Yeah. There is an incubation period, as we call it in the creative psychology literature, where it might not look like you're doing anything, but your brain is connecting a lot of dots in the background. And it's that need for an incubation period that really explains the like idea in the shower moment, that we always have big bursts of insight right when we've walked away from the problem and let our kind of unconscious kind of start working on it. And I think there are also just a lot of things that people are called to do and motivated to do that don't look productive in the very industrial kind of capitalistic sense, but some people are just really motivated to bring people together. You know, some people are just really motivated to make sure the people around them are having a good time or to understand others' emotions. All of these really essential, important, very human things. And I think this is often true of creativity as well, where it has such massive ripple effects. It's part of what makes us human and makes society and relationships possible, but it doesn't necessarily look like measurable productive output the way that we conceive of it right now. Something I find fascinating about the shower is is this observation that the shower has become like the last place where we don't hold ourselves to a certain standard of productivity. (laughs) 
yeah. it's all we have left is the shower. Like there's not like yeah, yeah. There's so much expectation to optimize every free minute that we have. You know, practicing a new language on your phone, listening to podcasts, always being on Slack, all of this stuff. We get so little silence and stillness compared to most other humans throughout history, and we really need that time to store new information in memory, to form connections between ideas so that we can kind of derive insight from the things that we've learned or just kind of test new facts against our understanding of reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we absolutely need it for creativity Um, as well as just for like mental health. It also, I always want to emphasize that everything that I'm talking about in the book, these things are good and important just on their own merit, not just as a means to an end of getting more things done, right? Absolutely. Um, though, it, yeah. though it's also true that they do tend to actually help us get the things that matter to us done. I was fascinated to learn in your book that when we think about the sort of guilty pleasures that we have, that we think are the things we're doing when we're lazy, one of them that comes to mind is cyber loafing, right? This, this notion of kind of, you know, scrolling on our phones or shopping online or scrolling social media. And you point out that, in fact, this is uh, often quite restorative. Yeah, this was really surprising to me, uh, even when I first encountered some of this research. So um, I had this graduate student who since graduated, Marvin, who um, is a mortician, interestingly, and he was really studying cyber loafing. So kind of screwing around online while you're technically at work and the um, psychological benefits and just the motivations for why it happens, because it's just one of those things, again, that industrial organizational psychologists bump up against where they view it as this barrier to productivity. Employees are constantly, you know, checking Facebook and online shopping. How can we keep them from doing this? And what Marvin really found was that, um, and there's some pre-existing work in the literature on this as well, uh, that cyber loafing often plays a really important gear, gear shifting function for workers. So when people are shifting between tasks or, um, have just completed kind of an arduous or boring work task, that's when they tend to kind of come up for air by checking in on what their friends and family are up to, looking at at something online, you know, scrolling through Instagram. And it's really a form of seeking novelty and social contact. And it can actually be really beneficial. Um, Or it's just inevitable. You know, there's kind of two different ways we can look at it as something that is really important and helpful psychologically. Um, or just also like a basic human need we, that is value neutral that we can just accept. Um, and what Marvin found in his research specifically was that cyber loafing was really helpful to morticians working in their offices late during the pandemic, a really stressful time to be a mortician. Um, and so, again, it's just one of those things we can kind of normalize and just accept instead of passing judgment against. And how do you think that that COVID and the the greater isolation, but also the sort of the gift of time for some people, uh, you know, just, just in not commuting and, you know, sitting with themselves more. Do you think it's been a positive for some folks or, or a negative? How do you think this epidemic has impacted people's relationship with their own laziness? I think it's been a really clarifying moment, which can be both a good thing and at least in the short term, feel really dreadful. Um, I certainly have witnessed a lot of people decide to leave jobs that were unfulfilling to them Mm -hmm, or just mm -hmm. completely reorient the structure of their lives. I know a lot of people who have come out of the closet during the pandemic because Mm -hmm. they finally had time to really sit with who am I really versus Mm -hmm. what does society 
expect me to be? And who am I when I don't have that lens put on me anymore? And I, we see it, I think, in the number of people who have proven that they'd rather leave a job than be forced to return to the office because they appreciate a life with the free time that not having a commute offers you and getting to spend time with your kids and cook meals from home and work on your own schedule, all of these things. I think the pandemic has really made people take stock of what they want out of life. And it's also really illustrated how absurd a lot of our work lives were before the pandemic. And so it can be really frustrating to see um, a lot of organizations try to return to quote unquote normal. Mm -hmm. And it is it is galvanizing to see so many workers refusing to get back into that loop because it was never good for any of us. And now we some of us have been blessed to know a different way of life. And I hope we don't give that up. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Robert Ducky, you're the one who makes bath time so much fun. Oh, hey, welcome back to the show. Since Devin points out that we often do our best thinking while we're soaping up, I figured I'd give it a whirl. Let's recap. Devin's first big idea is that we all fall under the sway of the laziness lie. That's the idea that your worth is measured by your productivity. Their second big idea is that laziness isn't a sign of lethargy. It's a sign that you're trying to do too much. Now in their third and final big idea, Devin says one of the biggest problems with our attitude towards laziness is that we equate industry and virtue. Action is not morally superior to inaction. In a world shaped by the laziness lie, working is equated with being virtuous. Doing something is almost always seen as superior to doing nothing. And this leads to a lot of problems, such as activist fatigue or activist frenzy, when we are just constantly posting misinformation online, overcommitting, engaging in work that we haven't really researched the consequences of, because we're so desperate to feel like we're doing good. You can think back to that Edmund Burke quote that many of us are taught as children. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good men to do nothing. This quote teaches us to equate taking action with doing good, even though there are situations where action isn't warranted or we're not the right person to be taking action. The interesting thing is that Edmund Burke never actually said that quote. 
His actual quote was, When bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. The real version of the Burke quote illustrates beautifully that it's not always hard, heroic work from rugged individuals that saves us. It's joining together as a community, supporting one another, and cultivating support networks that help us resist and survive the harm that comes our way. We don't have to be heroes or martyrs, and we don't need to constantly be going. We don't need to be experts on every issue, and we don't need to constantly be doing activism on every single front that just really isn't sustainable. We can take a step back and cultivate nourishing relationships, which will make us more resilient and help us support other people and help them to be more resilient in turn. And we can learn to trust others and to stop judging ourselves and them for being lazy. I like your comment that we can take a step back and cultivate nourishing relationships, which will make us more resilient and help us support other people. And that kind of connects to this idea that when we think about our kind of drive to be industrious, I th- it seems to me we, we maybe typically think of this as solitary work, right? That, you know, you know that we're, and this is certainly an American sensibility, right? That we're all supposed to be just sitting in our white boxes, just driving uh, ourselves forward. But, and, and when we do things together, we don't always consider it work because it's more fun, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, 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 but we know there's, there's like ever more research that when we do things together, we're, we're, we're happier. We're, this has been emerging as a theme on this show. We're, we're less vulnerable to logical fallacies. We talked about that with Steven Pinker recently. We, we do better work and we have more fun. So, uh, you know, I, I, do you think that this distinction between solitary work versus collective productive play is, is relevant? Oh, absolutely. I think if you just look at how media depicts like the singular hero, like any movie where there's someone kind of like overcoming injustice or or really any kind of narrative at all, um, we, just, we have such a like individualistic message fed to us of you need to work really hard, you need to be brave and do these things on your own, and you're going to save the world. And we're just really, really enculturated in that. Absolutely. Well, Talking more about this association between laziness and moral inferiority or moral failure, you you have this great description early on about, uh, you talk about the common view that homeless people are lazy. And that certainly is was a notion that I grew up with. I mean, that was sort of in the air. Because it's one of these first things you see on the face of a child is confusion about why, you know, why is somebody living in the street and how could this happen, you know? And in my survey of friends this morning, about 60% said that they had grown, not necessarily that their parents had told them this, but they just sort of grown up with an association between homelessness and laziness. And you make this great point that being homeless is really, really difficult, right? I mean, this is not a choice that you would ever make um, out of laziness. Like that association is, is really preposterous, right? And, and also, it has the effect, as you point out, of causing, of letting people off the hook, of saying, oh, well, that explains it. These folks are lazy, right? Yeah, exactly. I think, again, it comes back to that idea of seeing a person outside of their context and not understanding what their day-to-day life looks like. So, you know, we we see someone who's on the street as a child, and it's really disturbing, and then we're given this idea that, oh, actually, they deserve that fate because they didn't try hard enough. 
But then if you have known anyone who's ever been homeless, if you've ever been homeless, then you realize that it's um, a constant slog to just carry all of your stuff around. You're going from shelter to shelter or, you know, sleeping situation to sleeping situation. You're going to all these different meetings with social workers and uh, any government benefits that you're on. You're probably nursing injuries that you got from sleeping on the street. Um, if you are one of the few people in that situation who are lucky enough to get a job interview, like just getting presentable by kind of our professional standards to like get a job is an incredibly difficult logistical task. It's just this incredibly difficult, painful life. So the fact that we then turn around and say, you know, oh, this person's just going to spend any money we give them on alcohol. Um, yeah. So let's not give them any money. is just so missing the big picture and missing the structures that, that lead to these problems and keep people stuck in them. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate. I've been, I've been happy to see that it is something, um, throughout talking about the book that people are really open to re-examining. I think most of us realize Mm. that Mm. that idea was just an attempt to kind of explain away the system and keep those really hard feelings of guilt and, and sorrow at bay and that instead we can actually behave as if every person uh, deserves, you know, a reasonable degree of of comfort, at what, regardless of how productive they can be or can't be or what else is going on with them. Yeah, yeah. And, and compassion, as you point out towards the end of the book, is in many ways the solution. It's it's what allows us to see through the laziness lie, right? And and, and both compassion towards ourselves, right? I mean that we that we can look at our own experience and say, no, this is not, the problem is not a lack of willpower. The problem is, is uh, unrealistic expectations, inadequate sleep, what have you. And, and that same, extending that same compassion to all the marginalized groups who are stigmatized as being lazy has a similar clarifying impact. Yeah. I think it all goes back to basically trust and compassion again this idea that we can just assume and really believe that every human life has value that no one has to earn their right to exist and that we can stop assigning moral value to someone based on what they do or don't do or what they can do or can't do because it just really doesn't make sense when we are more compassionate to other people and we stop evaluating other people in terms of what use quote unquote, they have to society, suddenly we can be a lot easier on ourselves and we can start to believe, okay, maybe my life is just innately valuable and I'm okay no matter what. And if that's the case, how am I going to relate to other people? What does my life look like? Um, what are the things I've been pushing myself to do because I thought I needed to do them to like earn my right to be a human being that I can just let go of? And I, I like this. I, I like your observation that you have a you have a dog. I think uh, named Dump Truck. Is that right? Um, a chinchilla. Yeah. A chinchilla. I'm sorry. <laughs> named Dump Truck. And you don't you and you've never you've never judged Dump Truck based upon his or her productivity. Right. Yeah. The animals that we love <laughs> and and most of the humans that we love, we don't look at them and think about, has this person done enough for me? Have they done enough productively? You know, dump truck just kind of sits there um, and he's beautiful uh, exactly as he is. In fact, he's kind of a destructive force. Like he, you know, has chewed up my floorboards and all these things. Like he's not a productive uh, entity in the world. And it would 
be absurd to ever think about him in those terms. Um, he's just part of nature. He's just part of reality. Um, and this is something that David Graeber also talks about too in the book, um, Debt, the first 5,000 years. This idea that you have to separate a human being from nature or separate them from humanity for the conversation of like earning your right to exist to even make sense. Um, so if we instead just say, oh, wait, we are society, we are nature, we're just doing our own thing, we're just existing, and that's enough, um, that kind of frees us up from that logic of like, I'm just an individual that owes a debt to society that needs to work hard enough to justify my right to exist. It just really doesn't make sense to think of people that way. And we would never think about people that we love or animals that we love in that way. And so on a practical level, what what steps can we take in our own lives to to shake the the laziness lie? Yeah, so I think one of them is something that we've kind of already hinted at in some of our talk today, and that's the idea of cutting your to-do list in half or cutting way back on the number of things that you expect of yourself every day. I think uh, another really important place to start is to look at how you actually live your life um, on a day-to-day -day basis with a spirit of description and observation rather than judgment. So what times during the day are you actually productive? And when do you tend to hit a wall? Interesting. And instead of viewing that as some problem that you can white knuckle your way through with more coffee and beating yourself up, you know, if there are periods of the day where you just cannot focus Feelings are information. As another writer that I really like, Marta Rose, who writes a lot about like neurodiversity, talks about failure is data. Um, if you repeatedly fail to meet a goal, that is information. Something is not adding up. Um, so that's something that I also include some kind of example exercises in the book that people can try of just kind of keeping track of what goals you meet every day and how you mm -hmm. feel about the goals that you meet or don't meet, because you might be able to identify over time, there are certain things you're expecting yourself to do that don't actually matter that much to you. And you don't really mind that much that you don't do them. It's just kind of the fear of external judgment or this idea that if I don't do this thing, I'm, I'm a bad person um, or I'm not working hard enough that keeps us setting out to do them. So finding those things to let go of is really, really beneficial clarifying what the things are that are most important to you that are absolutely like non-negotiable goals and really front-loading your day with those is also really beneficial. And then first and foremost, just trusting your feelings and your daily habits as information about what you're capable of and assuming that however much you're currently doing, that's already your maximum. And so if you want to add anything else into your day, you're going to need to cut back. Let me ask you a final question. You, Devin, are a highly productive human being. You have a PhD. You've written a wonderful book. You have another in the works. You, you say in your book that you yourself have uh, struggled with this, the laziness lie, right? How, how is your own journey going? And, and do you think that, that in some cases, that though the, the laziness lie can be pernicious and, and uh, result in you know, poor health and all sorts of guilt and shame that, 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 that none of us want. It can also be a motivating factor that results in, you know, some, some positive outcomes. Uh, I, I think there may be some listeners who think, who are thinking to themselves, okay, true. I, I buy the fundamental thesis, but maybe I do need, uh, some kind of incentive and, and some shame to, you know, to sort of, 
go the extra mile and that life is inherently finite and, and that there's urgency around the finiteness of life and feeling that urgency maybe is not such a bad thing. Well, I guess I would say if somebody's worried about um, losing that kind of fire under them that drives them to to do things, I don't think any of us is going to unlearn the laziness lie completely in our lifetime. I think you'll always have that yeah. voice in the back of your head. But when I take stock of my life, there were a lot of things that I've done and I've accomplished that were motivated by the laziness lie. Um, academic yeah. accomplishments, studies that I published, things that I did that as soon as I had that trophy in my hand, it meant nothing to me. Mm. And I was just worried about what comes next. And yeah. it just felt really empty. But the things in my life that actually do matter and that I can take pride in that lasts tend to be the things that are motivated more by my beliefs and my values and my compassion. So the fact that I'm writing about this topic because I struggled and because I saw my students struggling and when I hear from people that it brought comfort to, um, those are the kinds of things that really stay with me. And also things in my life that are meaningful that are outside of the achievement realm entirely and are just private and just like life experiences and, and relationships with other people. Um, so that's really how I see it. I've tried the chasing achievements and orienting my life based on that route, and it did not bring me satisfaction or meaning. I'll probably never escape that rat race entirely because it's all around all of us. Um, so I'm not too worried about losing all motivation to ever do anything. You know, I know you don't think anybody needs to worry about uh, losing that structure. And um I have definitely moved more and more towards instead listening to what matters to me and what I believe in. And those two things are always a little bit in tension. They're probably always going to both be there. But the more I give more of my heart over to that kind of intrinsic stuff, the better life tends to be. Well, I think it'll be interesting to watch in the decades to come the work that you do. And, and my suspicion is that this, as you say, intrinsically motivated work may prove to be every bit as productive and or and, and maybe more inspiring than the the extrinsically motivated work uh, to me in my own life that has been the transition and hopefully for many people from the external scorecard and doing things for because of some kind of sense of external judgment and moving towards internal passions and that maybe we could be every bit as animated and productive not 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 productive in the negative sense or or obligatory sense, but but basically just you know collectively engaging in things we care about. Yeah, absolutely. I think there will always be things that we are pulled towards and that we're excited about and that we move towards. And a life that's driven by that is sometimes it's it's a uh, quote unquote productive life, but also more importantly, it's a meaningful one. Well, Devin, we're looking forward to your next book, and thank you for taking time out of your teaching and writing and raising your chinchilla mm -hmm. to be with us here today. It's really a, lovely to talk with you. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Would you like to hear two more big ideas from Laziness Does Not Exist? Not three ideas, but five big ideas. If so, download the next Big Idea app and check out Devin's book bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of other groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like this show and aren't feeling too lazy, 
leave us a review and a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. Thank you, Devin Price. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.